0: Jane Russell is a typical war bride. Bob Hope almost gets blood poisoning. Jane and Bob become best buds and mountains move. Join me as I review 1948's The Pale Face. Mm-hmm. I'm Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. 1948's The Pale Face is a hilarious comedy western that pairs our star of the month Jane Russell with the legendary Bob Hope. The film marked the start of the friendship between Jane and Bob and there's no doubt that the fun these two had together off screen enhanced their performances in the film. Before we get to the plot and all the behind-the-scenes fun, I want to disclaim that The Paleface, as the film's title suggests, may not be the film for those sensitive to political incorrectness. The film pokes fun at traditional women's roles, traditional Western heroes, and offers an extremely one-dimensional characterization of Native Americans. To enjoy The Paleface, the film must be viewed for what it is. A light, frothy, Western adventure romp verging on farce, with no ulterior political motives or intentions to hurt feelings. If you missed the film on TCM this week, it's still available to watch on TCM.com, and it's a great family film. Our family has already watched it twice this week, as per the request of my four-year-old. Okay, to the plot. Calamity Jane, Jane Russell, is a deerskin-clad, gun-slinging, western tough girl serving time when a few unidentified cowboys help her break out of jail. The boys then take Jane to a government office where we learn that her new buddies are actually government agents. The governor and the commissioner of internal affairs are both aware of Jane's prowess with a gun and seek her help to intercept some guns they've learned are about to be sold to a Native American tribe hostile to the New Frontier settlers. If Jane agrees to help stop the transaction, the governor will excuse her from her crimes and she won't have to serve the rest of her sentence. Jane agrees to the deal and heads off to Port Deerfield to meet up with the government agent that will pose as her husband on the wagon train to Buffalo Flats, where the gun exchange is expected to go down. But Jane discovers on her arrival in Port Deerfield that her fake husband is dead. The gun runners discovered his identity and shot him. Luckily, Jane's identity is still unknown to the bad guys, and she begins searching for an innocent sap to marry so she can remain undercover and above suspicion. You probably guessed that this is where Bob Hope enters the picture. Yep, Bob is painless Peter Potter, a traveling dentist who doesn't know what on earth he's doing, but proceeds to pull teeth out of the mouths of his poor patients anyway potter is a bit of a bumbling idiot but he's quite confident in himself so that's interesting one look at jane and her fancy velvet finery she's disguised herself as a sophisticated lady and painless is ready to marry her on the spot and join the wagon train and he does after a quick marriage painless and jane begin their journey while serenading the sleeping jane on the wagon train Painless doesn't realize when his horse strays from the path of the wagon in front of them and he leads the rest of the wagon train into the middle of nowhere. Everyone must bunk up for the night in a deserted cabin they find in the woods, and then they're attacked by Native Americans the next morning. Painless ends up in the thick of the bullets and arrows, so Jane throws him a gun and he starts shooting. Painless can't aim the gun, however and he ends up shooting all his bullets straight into the ground. Quite effective. But with his great ego, Painless mistakenly believes that he's the sharpshooter keeping the attackers at bay. Actually, it's Jane standing right behind Painless with the rifle whose bullets are taking down the enemy. But the rest of the settlers don't know this, so Painless is hailed as the hero who saves them all from death. Jane doesn't correct the misconception because she knows it helps keep her agent status under wraps. Painless's heroism convinces the gunrunners in the group that he's the government agent they need to get rid of. Once the wagon train arrives in Buffalo Flats, Painless is further hailed as a hero by the townspeople, and he gets a little big-headed. Eventually, Painless's hot-stuff attitude gets him into big trouble, and he's challenged to a duel by the local town creep. Jane thinks she couldn't care less if Painless dies in the duel, but just as he's about to be shot, she saves his life and shoots the other guy. Jane's finally fallen in love with her husband and realizes she doesn't want him to die. And wouldn't you know it, once again everyone credits Jane's quick draw and aim to Painless. Jane professes her love and finally comes clean to Painless about her mission and he helps her uncover some dynamite the gunrunners are planning to sell to the Native Americans. But Painless just isn't that suave or sneaky, so he and Jane end up captured by the bad guys and are taken to the Native American village for a tortuous death. Luck is on their side, however, and rather than being split in two by the trees Painless is straddled on and tied to, he's merely catapulted way into the air and lands in the forest but Jane is still captured and about to be burned at the stake. So what does Painless do? Why, he steals the clothes of the tribe's banished medicine man, of course. Then Painless goes back to the village dressed as the medicine man and dumps gunpowder everywhere while dancing to evade capture. When Painless finally is captured and tied to the stake, he's already cut Jane's bonds and lit the gunpowder. So Jane is now able to cut Painless free and they hightail it out of the village in the covered wagon with the dynamite. A harrowing wagon chase ensues, but Jane and Painless escape in an explosion of dynamite. The film ends with Painless and Jane all ready to start their life together, looking happy and gorgeous as they set out in their new Surrey with the Fringe on top. But Jane ends up with her face in the mud and her white dress ruined when the horses start to run and pull her out of the Surrey. As Painless tells the camera before Fade Out, what do you expect, a happy ending? And that's the end of the film. If you remember from my intro podcast on Jane Russell, Jane's first film, The Outlaw, really wasn't seen by the general public until 1946. The film enjoyed a limited release in 1943, but was quickly pulled from theaters for violating the Hayes Code moral stipulations. So from about 1941 to 1946, Jane was more famous for all of the outlaw publicity photos and Howard Hughes' very public fight with the censors than she was for the movies she made, simply because very few people had actually seen a Jane Russell film. Jane still enjoyed a relative amount of anonymity by the time she married her first husband, Robert Waterfield, on April 24, 1943. So when Waterfield was drafted, Jane, like any other war bride, packed her bags and followed Robert to Fort Benning, Georgia, for officers' training school. Now, you may have thought that since Jane was technically already a movie star, a popular pinup, with an Air Force unit named Russell's Raiders after her no less, and photos of her from the outlaw were circulated the world over, that she would have received some sort of special star treatment during this time as a young war bride in Fort Benning, Right? Well, she didn't, at least not at first. When Jane arrived in Fort Benning, as she says in her autobiography, quote, no one in town knew me from Adam, unquote. So Jane began looking for housing accommodations, just like everyone else. Fort Benning was crowded with other war brides doing the same thing. So Jane split her time between staying in the visitor's barracks, complete with a communal bathroom, and renting a room in a house she found in Columbus, Georgia, with kitchen privileges. Sounds like the life of a glamorous movie star, doesn't it? Jane also had to look for a job during that hot Georgia summer, as Howard Hughes had suspended her contract as soon as she left California. This time, Jane's movie star status had to have come in handy, right? Wrong! Jane found work in a beauty salon, as she shares in her autobiography, quote, jobs were scarce. I finally talked a beauty shop owner into letting me do makeups. I wasn't fit for much else. Of course, in that heat, makeup just ran off. That job lasted for only a couple of weeks, unquote. It's hard to imagine Jane accepting an everyday job after already having the lead role in a feature film under her belt. But Jane Russell was a trooper without ego. And I absolutely love that. Jane's status in Fort Benning did eventually change when, quote, I was walking down the street one day and heard my name. I turned and saw Kenny Morgan, Lucille Ball's brother-in-law. Kenny was into publicity and later became the head of publicity for Desi Liu. The next thing I knew, a newspaper man was getting a story and pictures of Jane Russell, the movie star War Bride. I was annoyed at the time, but it certainly taught me the value of red carpet treatment. I received a phone call the next day, and suddenly we had two bedrooms, a bath, a living room, and a kitchen, all furnished to ourselves. Praise the Lord and Kenny Morgan. Unquote. I would have been thankful for some red carpet treatment at that point, too. Jane's husband, Robert, played football on his regiment's team in Fort Benning and led the 176th to victory in the championship game. But victory came at a cost, and Robert was badly injured during the game. The injury was so severe that, as Jane says, his knee swelled up to twice its normal size. Robert was taken to a hospital in Atlanta before being honorably discharged. When Robert's knee finally did heal, it was back to football for the Waterfields. Robert played football for UCLA while finishing up school there and was then picked to play quarterback for the 1944 All-Star Game before being named Most Valuable Player, the Academy Awards of Football, as Jane says. Robert's career was certainly moving faster than Jane's at this point but she was still being offered plum roles, such as Calamity Jane in The Pale Face. When Jane got the call from her agent to meet him at Paramount Pictures for a meeting with Bob Welch, the man who would produce The Pale Face, she arrived in an eccentric outfit of bohemian printed shorts underneath an open skirt, complete with a matching top and wind-whipped hair from her drive to the studios in the convertible Robert had bought her for Christmas. Sounds like a cute outfit to me, but Jane's agent almost had a heart attack. Here she was trying to get a big film role, her first in over a year, and Jane waltzes into Paramount looking like a California hippie. Well, Jane's agent needn't have worried, for Bob Welch, as Jane says, didn't mind my outfit, and he loved me. Finally, after we chatted, I found out I was wanted for a picture called The Pale Face, playing opposite Bob Hope. Talk about a dream opportunity. Jane happily accepted the role, but the start of filming was delayed because Bob Hope, while vacationing with his family in South America, spent a little too much time in the sun and returned to the U.S. with such a terrible sunburn, it almost turned to blood poisoning. The burn was so bad, Bob couldn't even complete the train ride back to California from New York, he had to get off the train in Chicago and spend a few days in the hospital while he recovered. Once filming began, Jane and Bob became fast friends. It's a mutual compliment fest to hear each talk about the other. Jane said of Bob that, quote, Bob Hope was a ball, another Gemini. He's even funnier off screen than on, and everything's relaxed except his chocolate eyes, which never stop darting, never missing a thing, unquote. Bob affectionately nicknamed Jane, Lumpy, and always included her in his list of favorite co-stars because she was fun and not afraid to quip back at his teasing. I think this comical quote from Bob's book, The Road to Hollywood, which obviously refers to Jane's physical attributes, perfectly illustrates their comfortable and comical relationship. Quote, The pale face had a lot of things going for it. Among the most outstanding... Jane Russell, a Howard Hughes discovery. He was looking at the mountains one day and a couple of them moved, unquote. (laughs) Oh, that Bob. Bob Hope was known for his jokes and teasing on his film sets. One day while filming The Pale Face, director Norman MacLeod, a soft-spoken man with his own brand of quiet humor, as Jane put it, was the brunt of a Hope joke. Jane recounts this joke in her autobiography, quote, one early afternoon when the lights had to be changed, which took a bit of time, Bob said, Well, I think we'll get this tomorrow. There's still time to get a few holes of golf. I'll see you later, and he walked off the huge sound stage. When he got to the door, Norman stomped his foot and said softly, Bob, you come back here. Bob, of course, was gone, and we all broke up laughing and went home." Unquote. I guess if you're a superstar of Bob Hope's status, you can carry your jokes that far. When The Pale Face premiered in December of 1948, critics were for the most part positive, but audiences went uniformly crazy for the film. The Pale Face earned $4.5 million at the box office and became the most successful solo film of Bob Hope's career. And a quick side note, That was in part because Bob was able to heavily promote The Pale Face with his touring radio troupe in the months before the film's release. Can you guess who his singer was at the time? None other than Doris Day. The Pale Face is certainly one of Bob Hope's best performances, in part because of the well-crafted script by Frank Tashlin. Tashlin, who would also write and direct the Pale Face sequel, 1951's Son of Pale Face, again starring Jane and Bob, wrote The Paleface in such a way as to incorporate Bob Hope's comedy gags into the story. The Paleface isn't just a string of Bob Hope jokes and facials pasted together. Every Hope one-liner and bit of physical comedy is expertly crafted into the storyline, and the film shines as a result. Jane is definitely Bob's straight man in the film, and she's the perfect springboard for his jokes, as well as the dose of reality that keeps Bob's zany character grounded. Jane actually based her Calamity Jane off of her husband, Robert Waterfield. Robert was known for being very stalwart and rather stone-faced, as his friends and family teased. It took a lot to get a reaction out of Robert Waterfield, and Jane knew this was the exact sort of quality her Calamity Jane needed. As Jane says in her autobiography, quote, The script by Frank Tashlin was a delight and I discovered that my role was like a female Bob Waterfield, dry and flat. When the critics later said that I was expressionless, I knew I'd managed to hit it, a stone face, Buttons and Bows, the film's big song, would go on to win the Oscar for Best Original Song at the 1949 Oscars. But according to Bob Hope, Jay Livingston and Ray Evans actually had quite a hard time writing it. Their first go was nixed by Bob and producer Bob Welch. Hope and Welch wanted a song that would keep with the old Western period feel of the film. So, as Bob Hope shares, it was, quote, back to the drawing board for Livingston and Evans. As they returned to their office in the music building, Ray suggested a title, Buttons and Bows. They sat down in their office and completed the phrase frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things, and buttons and bows. Then Jay started to write a musical phrase to lead into it. Unquote. And just about three weeks later, Livingston and Evans had it. Bob knew Buttons and Bows was the song the moment he heard it, and quickly learned the lyrics and filmed the number of him singing it to Jane in the pale face. Though Bob did sing the song first in the film, Dinah Shore's recording of Buttons and Bows came out before The Paleface* premiered in December of 1948. Dinah's recording of the song was a tremendous hit and stayed at number one on the record charts for six months. Understandably, it irked Bob that Dinah was getting all this attention for a song he viewed as his, in a way. As Bob shares, quote, Dinah's record was a big smash, and there I was without a recording of my own hit song. I finally made a record for Capitol." And so Bob Hope added another hit song to his name. 1938's popular Thanks for the Memory was also introduced by Hope, and that became his signature song. Jane Russell would also treasure Buttons and Bows, and it became a bit of her signature song as well. Jane would sing the song to Bob and Son of Pale Face in 1951, and she continued singing Buttons and Bows in her later years when she performed locally around her Santa Maria home. I almost had the chance to watch Jane in one of her shows during her last years. I was unfortunately away at university, but my parents had the amazing opportunity to attend one of Jane's performances. They were awed at the great beauty, talent, and voice the nearly 90-year-old Jane still had. What an incredible experience to be in the same room as one of Hollywood's greatest stars and to hear her sing. I still feel the magnitude of this missed opportunity. And that wraps up my podcast on 1948's The Pale Face. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. And don't forget to listen to Vanguard of Hollywood next time as I review one of my very favorite films ever. The film that introduced me to both Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, 1953's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes.